Thank you for making us part of your Christmas celebration. I want to invite you to come back uh, this afternoon. We've got two Christmas Eve services here. It's going to be a different service uh, than what you're hearing now, but that's going to be at 3.30 is the first one, and the second one's at 5 o'clock. So uh, briefer service, but we'd love for you to join us for that time. Uh, if it sways you, there will be fire. Um, we're going to give you candles, and we're going to light them together. So uh, we would love for you to join us to be a part of either of those services, 3.30 or 5 o'clock. Well, I don't know what your Christmas has looked like, but I imagine you've seen some Christmas lights up around. We uh, have some up in our neighborhood, and uh, it's been uh, exciting just to drive around and, and see them and, and to uh, just be impressed with some of them. We went to look at some, and, and you just look at those, and you say, wow, that person is clearly left-brained because there's not a single light out of place on that entire house. It is, it's amazing. There's others that you look at and you say, wow, that person risked their life. Our neighbors across the street have a big two-story house, and I watched them putting the, the lights up, and the guy was on a ladder way higher than I ever want to be, and he was leaning back on the ladder to keep them under the eaves of a roof, and I just thought, it's not worth it. It's not, it's not worth it. They look great. Don't get me wrong. I just, it wasn't worth the life risk. And then there's the other houses that look like Buddy the Elf just threw up all over the lawn. Um, you know the ones I'm talking about. They have every inflatable known to mankind and, uh, and so many different things. You don't know where to look when you're looking at the house and you just think to yourself, wow, they love Christmas, don't they? Some of these houses have a nativity scene, though, that uh, you'll find outside. And you'll drive by and you'll see the, the scene or you'll go for walks like we do around our neighborhood and you'll look at the scene. And you'll be reminded of the purpose for all of this again. That it's not about the lights on the house, and it's not about all of the gifts, and it's not about the good Christmas food that we find every year, and it's not about the nostalgic music that we hear. It's not about any of that. It's about what this represents. It's about this baby, this baby that we've been talking a lot about over the last few weeks. What child is this? Some of these nativity scenes have more than just Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. You'll also see the shepherds there. And some of them you'll see the cattle and the, the donkeys there as well. And then occasionally you'll see a few other figures that are there at the, the stable. Now, whether they should be or not is a different story, but the wise men. In fact, these wise men have been the subject of a lot of mystery over the years because the only thing that we know about these three men is found in Matthew's gospel. In fact, if you'll take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 2, that's where we're going to be camped out for the morning together. Maybe you have these wise men in your nativity scene, and that's fine. You don't need to move them. Maybe some of you grew up in a house that said, well, the wise men, they didn't get there until much later after Jesus was born. So maybe your nativity scene is on the side table by the couch, and your wise men are on your mantle, just to be historically accurate. Wise men are interesting characters, and I think in part because we just don't know much about them. We don't even know their number. We say there's three wise men because there are three gifts. But you'll notice in the text it never says that. The text of Scripture never defines the number of wise men that came to worship Jesus. We also don't know that they were kings. A lot, a lot of times this year, we'll sing, sing the old Christmas hymn, We Three Kings of Orient are bearing gifts we've traveled so far. We don't even know that they were kings. In fact, it's probable they weren't kings. That was a tradition that emerged in the third century. And it emerged because of a connection, albeit a loose one, to Isaiah chapter 60. 
In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, it talks about the nations bringing their gifts to the Messiah. In Isaiah 60, verse 6, it even says that kings will bring frankincense and gold to the Messiah. So you can see the connection, but here's why I'm going to suggest I don't believe that these were actually kings. Because if you, you're holding a, a, another translation aside from the ESV, the ESV calls them wise men. But if you're holding perhaps an NASB, you'll see in the text that they're called magi. The word magi is a transliteration of a Greek word. In other words, we just carried it over from the Greek text. And it's a word that was used in the Old Testament Greek translation called the Septuagint to refer to the wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Remember in the book of Daniel, in the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the, the wise men had such a prominent role in those opening six chapters there. Well, that was the same category of people as we find here in Matthew's gospel. In fact, uh, these wise men probably were likely from that same area, from Persia, from Babylon, from that region. And so as such, they would have been uh, similar to the, the wise men in the book of Daniel. Those that study the, the events, study dreams, try to interpret things, look at the stars, as we're going to find here momentarily, try to interpret things from the stars. That's the type of people that these three men, or more or less, were. The ESV calls them wise men. Look at the text. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These magi, these wise men, have always been intriguing characters to me. I wish we knew more about them. I wish we knew the rest of their story. What happened after this? Did they stick around? Did they track with the, the, the life of this child that they came to worship? Were they there when he was crucified, when he was resurrected? Were they some of his followers afterwards? Who were these magi? We don't know a lot, but what we do know, the little we do know, informs you and me this morning a great deal about how we should approach and greet the Savior's birth. But before we get there, why the magi? After all, this series, remember, is what child is this? And this particular message is supposed to be focused on Jesus, the Son of God. What does Jesus, the Son of God, and the Magi have to do with the nativity scene and Christmas? How are all of these pieces? What's the connection? Well, I'm glad you asked. Number one, the Old Testament uh, had a, a, the, the concept of the Son of God present within it. And the concept of the Son of God for you and me today, this morning, may immediately cause us to think of the fullness of the deity of Jesus. That he was not just Son of Man, but Son of God. That he was fully God, fully man. And that's right. It is. It's a title that implies that. But for the original audience, and in the Old Testament, the phrase, the title, Son of God, was more connected to the identity of the Son of David, the, the King who would come. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, in the midst of the covenant that God gives to David, God says this, I will be to him, one of David's future offspring, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what that means is from the time of David onward, all of the, the Davidic kings, okay, Solomon and so forth, all of them were types of the ultimate king who would come. They were they were types of the, they were, they were shadows of the substance. All of them had this idea of the son of God. 
that they were God's agent on earth, that they were God's representative on earth, that they were, represented God's authority over God's people. But they were all shadows of the true substance. They were all types of the fulfillment, the ultimate son of God who would one day come. Psalm 2 talks about that son of God. Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, the father says, As for me, I have set, here's our concept, my king. I have set my king on Zion in Jerusalem, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. To this king that the father is speaking of here, that he would install on his holy hill, he says to that king, you are my son. So when we hear the phrase, son of God, we need to think about it the way that the original audience of Matthew's gospel would have thought about it. We need to think about it in the, through the lens of the Old Testament saints, in the lens of the, the early believers, and to understand that that phrase was dripping with royal significance. That that phrase was full of messianic expectation. Everybody thought about the Son of God and thought about the coming Messiah, the one descendant of David who would rule that kingdom that would have no end. Now let me come back to these three wise men. And the question they ask when they show up in Jerusalem there is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's why what child of this is this, the son of God? That's why we're focused this morning on Jesus as king. These wise men, they come from the east. They bring these extravagant, extravagant gifts and we'll find out that they, they prostrate themselves in worship before a child. It's mind-boggling on multiple levels. But they teach us a great deal about what our own relationship with Jesus should look like as well. See, these magi, these three wise men, these, uh, these travelers from the east recognized King Jesus, the Son of God. And they've yielded to him in worship, offering gifts that befit his true identity. And listen, church, as Christians, we should recognize King Jesus as well, the Son of God, and offer everything we are in surrendered devotion to him. We have to recognize King Jesus, the Son of God, and offer everything we are in full devotion to him. Back in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2 again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These wise men, it says in the text, are from the east. That would have been, uh, again, most likely from Persia, from Babylon. If that's so, this would have been about a four-month journey to get to Bethlehem from where they began. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 9, Ezra the scribe records that for us, that it was a four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so if these wise men came from that area, they were on the road for quite a long time. It's also possible that east may mean just on the other side of the Jordan River in the Arabian Desert, but it still would have been a, a ways away. And so regardless of where they originated from, this was a, a journey that they undertook, and it, it was precipitated or begun by the appearance of a star. Remember, I mentioned earlier, these wise men were known for studying the stars, studying the skies. And so as such, they noticed that this star appears that they hadn't noticed before, that they hadn't seen before. What's the deal with this star? Well, if this truly was ancient Babylon, which is my inclination, 
you remember that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the rest of the Jewish exiles that were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar had set up camp there for about 70 years. And so as such, they would have left an impact around the culture and the society, including the religious culture there in Babylon. Their time there with Daniel being the man that he was and his three friends, the men that they were, they would have imparted their expectation that God was going to do something great and that it was going to be connected to a star. And you say, well, why would it be connected to a star? Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Numbers 24, verse 17, which I know in your mental Rolodex is right behind John 3, 16. But just in case it's not, welcome to the club and let me read it for us. Numbers 24, 17, this is Balaam's prophecy. He says, I see him, but not yet. Huh, who's he talking about? I see him, but not yet. I I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The wise men in that area, having been exposed to the the history left behind by the Jewish people during their time of captivity and this expectation that a, a royal figure represented by a star would come, they're there, they're gathered together and put yourself there. They're studying the stars as they were given to do and they realize there's a new one and it's over towards the west from where they were and it calls to mind this prophecy that a star would rise out of Israel. And so they gather together and decide together that it's worth investigating further. Well, they journey and they go. And notice where they go to first. Where would you go if you were looking for a king that had been born? You'd go to the palace, right? And so that's what they do. They come to Jerusalem. They come to the the palatial residence of King Herod. And they go to King Herod and they say, where's the king? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? You may know the rest of the story, which is not as much our focus this morning, but Herod is is pretty concerned about this because he views this king of the Jews as a threat to him. So he tries to to snuff him out eventually and put an end to all this, though it it doesn't work, spoiler alert. Um, But the wise men are there, and and while they're there, they find out from the, the Jewish leaders where he was going to be born. In fact, if you pick up in verse four, uh, Herod's interested too because he wants to know where he needs to to send the people to uh, dispatch with this king. But if you pick up in uh, verse four, it says, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So they go to Jerusalem, to the palace, because why wouldn't you? Here's a king that's going to be born. They go expecting the king to be in the palace, and they find out, no, he's not in the palace. He's actually over in a house in Bethlehem, a city that doesn't even register on the map. And so they depart, and they go to find him. Jump down with me, if you will, to verse 10. When they saw the star, so the star, they picked that, that star back up again and it's giving a little bit more precise directions. It's like when you do a U-turn in your car and you're waiting for Google Maps to recalculate and it's got you off the side of your phone. It's not even on the road anymore. And then finally it gets back and you just, you're so glad that it's back on, the, on track. So they see the star again and they, they realize where they're supposed to go. Look at their reaction. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, this is why we believe it was also a little bit of time later, 
They're, not, they're, they're no longer in the, the, the birthplace anymore. They've now set up at least residence for Mary to be able to recover and them to be able to get back on their feet, and they're in a house. How long after? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it was some time after. So they come to the house, and they come into the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they offered, that word is used in, uh, in the, the Bible, especially of, of offerings, generally speaking, of just gifts, but more often than not, it's connected to, with sacrificial offerings, with bringing the things to the temple, the animals, the doves, things like that, to, to render worship to God. And so they come, they offer this child and a poor carpenter and unwed mother these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold, clearly we understand the, the worth of gold. We think to ourselves, oh, yeah, sure, gold is, is valuable. It's, 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 we compare people's worth by the weight in gold, right? It's worth its weight in gold. So we get that, that gold is valuable. Frankincense and myrrh were right up there, though. They were spices that were derived from the resin of some trees, and they were not commonplace. Certainly not for a poor carpenter, an unwed mother, and a tiny little child. There's no way that Mary and Joseph and Jesus would have had a storehouse of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that they would have just been like, oh, thanks, you can put it over there with the rest of those. These were gifts that were not reflective of the societal status of the family that these wise men had come to see. But they were gifts that certainly were fitting for the king that came to worship. And so they bring these gifts with them. And so picture these wise men for a moment, if you will, they come from the east and they bring these treasures that would have been so valuable. In fact, many commentators believe that it's, it's these gifts that the wise men bring that enabled Joseph to take his family and flee to Egypt to avoid the death of all the children that Herod was about to unleash. So they bring these gifts, these, these valuable treasures to a child and they lay them down at the feet of a child. Think about these wise men. They bring their status and their prestige and they come and they, they lay these things down at the feet of a child, King Jesus. Think of these wise men and their wisdom and their intellect and their knowledge and their education. And they bring all of those and they lay those things down at the feet of King Jesus. Think of these wise men who bring themselves and literally prostrate themselves. It means to lie down in worship. To humble themselves in prostrate worship at the foot of the child, King Jesus. And what prompted all of that? Look again at verse 10. When they saw the star, what did they do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Look, even in the English, we're, we're struggling to, to, to capture it. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like when you define a word with a word. It's like they were so happy. How happy were they? Really happy. One commentator said they were thrilled to bits. Well, when you, you use that phrase last. They were deliriously happy is the way another one put it. It's capturing the idea a little bit then. And, and here's what's so amazing. It's this joy that prompted their worship. They were so excited at finding this child. Now contrast that with everyone else on the scene at this time. How little these three men understood. 
compared to the scribes and the Pharisees who had met together and said, oh yeah, well, the Messiah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Think about how little they understood, and yet they understood better, better than Herod, better than the Pharisees and the scribes, better than most, that this was no ordinary child. It's important for us to note because what produces this in them again is great joy. Listen, I, I hope that you've realized that this baby that we're celebrating this Christmas is not just a baby, but king. And I hope you've come and you've submitted your life to him as King Jesus. But it has to be from an overflow of joy similar to what these three experienced that led to the worship. Nothing else will produce that in your life. Nothing else will sustain that devotion in your life other than the joy of realizing who he is and why he came. When you get that joy, that's when we bring ourselves and we subject ourselves in worship to this king. First point this morning is this. Give King Jesus all he is due. Give King Jesus all he is due. Off the 101 freeway in Los Angeles in 2014, uh, the musician Harry Styles was driving and felt sick. So he got over on the side of the road and did what you do when you feel sick. I'll put it that way. After that happened, news broke about that because that's the world that we live in. And people decided that they were going to get in their car and drive to that spot on the 101 freeway. And they set up a shrine to his sickness on the side of the road. Or another story I read this week had a testimony of a woman who drove over a thousand miles to see the artist, the musician Pink perform. And Pink gave her an autograph on her arm that night. And this lady said that was one of the three greatest moments of her life. Or just think about the, the pandemonium around Taylor Swift these days. People are online right now selling pieces of confetti from her concerts on eBay. But the most absurd one, somebody is online, thankfully there are zero bids on this one, but somebody is selling a bag of authentic air from a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> Starting bid is 100 bucks. By the way, Christmas is right around the corner. It's tomorrow if you haven't done your shopping yet. No, don't buy that. Don't, don't buy that. Don't buy that. Listen, why do I bring all those things up? Because I, I want you to understand that our world understands devotion and worship. To suggest give King Jesus all he is due, we live in a world that understands rendering things to someone that we believe they are due. I brought up Taylor Swift. You go to these, these concerts. I heard recently that it's like five grand to get into one of those concerts. It's the last place on earth I would want to be. So I'm not even tempted or the, the needle doesn't even move for me on that, right? But why do people want to be there? Because there's this concept that they, that they worship her. They want to devote their, their, they watch some of these concert scenes and it looks like some of the most sold out, devoted Christian worship that you'll see. Eyes closed, hands in the air, heads back. It's, you look at it and you think they must be just wrapped up in the worship of God and they're not, they're wrapped up in the worship of Taylor Swift or whoever it is. An athlete. Right, the Dodgers are dumping a billion dollars out of the back of a, a dump truck somewhere to, to, to sign these athletes. 
Our world understands praising and, and giving devotion and, and, and giving someone something that they're due, right? Y'all, King Jesus is worth everything to us. And, and, and these three understood that at least in part. And that's why they come and they give not only their gifts, but then they lie themselves down before this baby, this child, King Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, is King Jesus getting the same response from you today? Have you surrendered your life to King Jesus? I mentioned that joy is gonna sustain that. Joy over what? Joy over realizing who he is and what he came to do. Jesus would say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, King Jesus, to be sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. It's a joy that realizes that your hope for eternal life, your hope for the forgiveness of your sin resides in this child, King Jesus. The perfect life of obedience that he would live. The sacrificial death that he would die. And the first fruits of the resurrection that he would accomplish. And that if you will turn from your sins in repentance and trust in this Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, God will forgive you your sins and you will rise from the dead one day too to live with him forever in eternity in heaven. The, the joy that comes from understanding that our hope for eternal life is rooted in King Jesus, that's what causes us to surrender everything we are and give him all that he's due. Think about these three again for a moment, if you will. The arduous journey that they were willing to undertake. Perhaps four months, perhaps a little bit less, perhaps longer. Saying it's worth it because of who he is. Think about the sacrifice of the gifts that they had procured to give to King Jesus and they're bringing these with them along the way, at risk, by the way, on that journey from anyone who might see them carrying these things and have nefarious means and want to go and attack them. They were exposing themselves to danger to find this king. Why? Because at the end, they believed that he was worth it. We don't know the rest of their story, as I was intimating earlier. I, I wish we did, but we don't. But perhaps they did follow Jesus after this in track with what was going on, which in, in that case, the other cost to them is they have to give up their whole system prior to this. Everything that they once believed, all the things that they once practiced, if they're gonna follow Jesus, that is now all of a sudden incompatible with their new king. Or think about just them undertaking the journey, packing the saddlebags on the camels and having their mom and dad or cousins or brothers or sisters going, you're going to do what now? And the side eyes and the scoffs and the mocking that maybe they in, endured when they told people, we're going to investigate this star because we think that there's a king that's been born in Israel. Think about the cost to their dignity and their pride as they come into this small house and they lay themselves down at the foot of a child. Think about how much their lives reflect what Jesus was worth to them. How much does your life reflect that Jesus is worth to you? If someone were to observe the way that you interact with Jesus for a day, a week, a month, over the course of that time, 
what would they conclude about how you view Jesus? You see, here's one of the problems of our world today is we have so many people that name the name of Christ, that say, I want to be a Christian, and yet in their minds, what they mean is, I want Jesus like I want my congressional representative. I'll vote for him every once in a while for him to continue to represent me before God because I understand that that benefits me. So I'll vote for Jesus to continue to be my savior every once in a while by maybe showing up at church occasionally. But really outside of that, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't feel like I need Jesus. Honestly, aside from time to to vote, how often do you think you really need your congressional representative in your life? Probably not much. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not Jesus. This is Jesus, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, in rank, not chronology, meaning he's not, he wasn't a created being, meaning he held firstborn status, okay? Firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul continues, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is King Jesus, the baby in this house, before whom These men laid prostrate. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, meaning he might have first place in everything. For in him, in Jesus, in King Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell The writer of Hebrews says, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He continues and says, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is King Jesus or John 1. In the beginning was the word, King Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. Does your relationship with Jesus reflect this identity? Is this the Jesus that you worship and does your life bear that out? You know, Jesus is coming back, not as a baby. King Jesus, in fact, is coming back. And here's how it's defined and described for us in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is King Jesus as he will return. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, not swaddling clothes laid in a manger. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wide winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is how King Jesus comes back. And so between the baby in the manger and the rider on the white horse, this is where we find ourselves this morning. And my question is, have you given to King Jesus all he is due here before you're going to be forced to there? Because that will happen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, King Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we're talking about this morning. Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you done that here and now before it's too late then and there? King Jesus is coming back. And so let me encourage you this Christmas season I'm sorry, this is not the warm, fuzzy message that you often get around Christmas time. But a lot of times that won't save anyone. Jesus is not just the mascot of Christmas, like the Easter bunny is of Easter. He is king, he is Lord. And we are between the manger and the horse. And this season right now is the season for you to come to realize who he is and what he's done for you and to bow the knee now in faith and repentance before it's too late then and there. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and they came in to worship King Jesus. Give Jesus all he is due. Come back with me to the beginning of Matthew chapter two, if you will. Again, let me read these verses that I've read a couple times already, but just to reframe them now in light of this, in light of what they do, the fact that they're there to worship him Beginning of chapter 2 again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. From these opening two verses now, we get some help, I think, as to what a devoted life to King Jesus should look like. Give to him all that he's due. Okay, what does that look like? What should that look like? Maybe, and I pray that you are there saying, I've done that. I've repented for my sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've trusted that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the dead so that I can live with him forever. I am in Christ. Now, what are we talking about this morning? It's a great question, and I think we get some, some glimpses into it. If I can take some liberty here and read between the lines a little bit in Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 2. Notice first off that these men are looking for the star, okay? They're watching for it. That's why they find it, which, if I can, implies to me at least that they weren't satisfied with what they had. If they were satisfied with what they had, they would have said, well, who cares about a star in Israel? But there was something about the promise contained in this appearance of the star that piqued their curiosity enough that they were aware, they were watching, they were wanting, wanting something more. And so they go to follow the star. Second, notice the length that they go to follow the star. I don't know about you, the last time you took a four-month journey on a camel, but I'm guessing nobody in the room qualifies on that one. 
probably not a pleasant experience. Sometimes when I get to the office, which is 10 minutes away from my house, and I realize I left something at home, I'm like, oh, you, really? I've got to get in my car that's got air conditioning and comfortable seats and drive back home all the way 10 minutes? Sometimes that's my keys, so I have to do it because I can't get in the door. <laughs> but the, 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 the journey they undertake, they're willing to go through this. But not just the journey. Think about it. They, they, they stopped everything about their lives to go after King Jesus. They pushed pause on their calendars to go after King Jesus. They canceled all their Zoom meetings for that week to go after King Jesus because they counted him more worthy. Not just that they were looking and that they were willing to undertake the journey, but third, note the, the, the great cost that they undertook to worship him. They had to go out and they had to get the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And they had to pack that on and take that with them. And it's not just that they sacrificed to do those things by giving up their resources to procure those things. But more than that, it's the attitude that they thought Jesus was worthy of those things. And they walk into a house with a baby, a child, and they take these gifts that are fit for a king and they leave them there at the feet of a baby and a poor carpenter and an unwed mother. As we've talked about already, the importance of devoting our lives to the worship of King Jesus, giving him all that he's due. I want us to spend a little more time, in fact, the rest of our time this morning, it's only a two-point sermon this morning, so if you're going, he's got three points, what, what time is it? It's only a two-point sermon. I want us to spend the rest of our time thinking about what that worship of King Jesus should look like. And it starts with the mindset. Point number two this morning is this. Center your life on King Jesus. Make your whole life about King Jesus. Center your life on him. Perhaps you are like the Magi this morning and you are just out there thinking there's got to be something more to this life than I've found so far. Can I tell you that's a good thought and feeling to have and the best place to come is to King Jesus to realize the satisfaction that you've been missing? Nothing under the sun is going to satisfy you. There's a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes that talks all about that. And the key to getting over the sun, so to speak, is a right relationship with King Jesus. Because that's the key to go from death to life. Maybe you're like the Magi, I hope you are, and you are ready to reorient everything about your life around King Jesus. Your schedules, your priorities, your responsibilities, and even your identity that you're willing to center all of those things on King Jesus. I hope you're like the Magi, convinced of the worthiness of Jesus. And not just to receive material offerings from us, but to receive the offering of a fully devoted life to him. I, I hope you're there in mindset. But again, as I mentioned earlier with the idea of the congressional representative, the, the similar idea we have in Christianity, in, in, especially in a culture where it's so easy for us to be comfortable. And it is. It's easy for us to be comfortable here. One of the, the, the byproducts of that that's not a good one 
is that it's too easy for us to think that Christianity means just adding a little bit of Jesus to my life. Adding a little bit of showing up at church to my life. Adding a little bit of, of giving to the church to my life. Adding a little bit of, of Bible reading from time to time to my life. But as I mentioned earlier, that, that's not biblical Christianity at all. Biblical Christianity, what does it look like when we've encountered Jesus? What does our life look like? Well, let me give you at least one example that I think we find in the pages of Scripture, and that's found in Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Philippians chapter 3. It's to the right in your Bibles. It's on page 1,136 in my Bible. I don't know what it is in your Bible. Philippians chapter 3, though, the Apostle Paul is the author of Philippians. The Apostle Paul used to be the Pharisee Saul. Now, Saul used to be a persecutor of the church. In other words, Saul hated King Jesus for a good portion of his life. Wanted to destroy the church for a good portion of his life. Until God opened his eyes and he came to see the same value and worth in King Jesus that we're talking about this morning. What changed about Saul's life, Paul's life? Philippians chapter three, pick up in verse four. It says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's about to describe who he was, all the good things about his life here, okay? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, if you want to know what a true Israelite looks like, look at me, is what Saul was saying. As to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were experts in the law and considered some of the most righteous people that were there in Israel. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now you might think, well, that's a bad thing. Yes, except that Paul thought he was serving God in that because he looked at the church as a threat to God, as a threat to Yahweh, the king of Israel. And so here he's saying he was thought he was serving God in that, a persecutor of the, the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Was Paul saying that he was sinless? No, he was saying as far as he was aware, he had no pockets of unconfessed sin in his life. He was doing all he could to obey the law. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What changes? Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, that I might share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what King Jesus does to our lives. Changes everything about our lives. 
Your priorities, your schedule, your calendar, your family, everything is brought and laid at the feet of King Jesus. Do you have such an all-consuming passion for the lordship of King Jesus in your life? We talked about this concept from the 30,000 foot view in point number one, but now I want to get down to the, the ground level a little bit. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of your life? That's a, a catchphrase that we'll talk about in the church. Well, have you made Jesus Lord of your life or rather surrendered to Jesus as Lord of your life? What does that mean? Is that just saying, yes, Jesus is Lord of my life? No, it's not just saying, it's also looking. For Jesus to be Lord of your life means this. It means that in every area of your life, every area of your life, you are seeking not only the will of God, but seeking to obey the will of God as you strive to glorify him through a life of worship. That's what lordship means. That in every area of your life, you are seeking not only the will of God, but also to obey that will as you strive to glorify him in every aspect of your life through living a life of worship to him. And so with that in mind, let me ask this. When you consider your life, is Christ the Lord of your calendar? Is King Jesus king over your schedule? Or are you like our society trying to fit a little bit of Jesus in in the, the free time that you've got on your calendar? Colossians 1, that he might be preeminent, have first place in everything. As you think about your calendar, is Jesus Lord of your calendar? How about of your finances? Are you stewarding the money that God has given to you seeking his will and to obey his will for his glory through your finances? Is he king over your family time? As you spend time together as a family unit, and this is that time of year when we're spending a lot of time together as family, let me ask you a question. Does your family time look any different from the unbelieving neighbors that you have across the street or next door? Is there a difference there between your family time and their family time? If King Jesus is Lord of your family and you're seeking his will to obey his will to glorify him through your family, then the answer to that question will be, yeah, there's a difference. How about your vacation? When you go on vacation, do you take a vacation from your walk with Christ too? Or is Jesus king over your vacation time? When you're out of town, do you leave church here or do you go to church wherever you are? Do you take King Jesus with you on vacation? Free time. What do you do with your free time? Not just your hobbies and habits, but what about your thought life? Is King Jesus king over your free time? Your neighborhood. God has placed you in a neighborhood. We've talked about that before. That neighborhood is a mission field. Is King Jesus king over the mission field of your neighborhood? Are you getting to know your neighbors and recognizing, man, these people don't know Jesus as king and they need to hear the gospel? Is King Jesus king over your neighborhood? Is he king over your parenting, those of you who are parents? Are you raising your kids to, Lord willing, follow King Jesus? You say, Pastor, I can't make my kids follow King Jesus. I understand that. Believe me, I do. But are you doing everything that you can to set them up to follow King Jesus? Is King Jesus king over your friendships, your relationships, those closest to you? Are they people that spur you on to love and seek his will more in your life? 
Is King Jesus king over your marriage? Have you submitted your marriage to say, I want to seek the Lord's will for my marriage? I want, uh, husbands, I want to seek the Lord's will for me as a husband. Wives, I want to seek the Lord's will for me as a wife. And I want to obey that will so that Christ is glorified through our marriage. How about retirement? Is King Jesus Lord over your retirement? Maybe for those of you that aren't retired yet, is he king over your investment? Is he king over the, the way that you work right now? What are you working towards? What are you striving after is all of your hope based on, as John Piper would put it, picking up seashells on the seashore? Or are you thinking about your retirement as, man, God is going to free me up and I'm going to have so much more time to serve King Jesus during that season of my life? How about social media? Is King Jesus king over the accounts that you follow, the posts that you like, the posts that you make? One more. Workplace. Is King Jesus king at your job? Are you seeking his will as an employee, as an employer? Are you seeking to obey his will in those areas? Are you seeking to glorify Christ through that obedience in those areas? Again, that's what it means for Christ to be Lord, for Jesus to be King Jesus over our lives. These three men come from so far away. And they do so because they recognize that he is king. And they fall down, they prostrate themselves, they worship King Jesus. Are you there this morning? Have you surrendered yourself completely to King Jesus? Have you surrendered your ambitions, your dreams, your desires, your calendar, your schedule, your parenting, your family, your marriage, your work, your, your, your future, have you surrendered it to King Jesus? To say, God, take all of it and use it for your glory. That's what we're after here. That's the significance of this baby. He's not just there for the, the oohs and ahs and the coos and the giggles and the cuddles. The cradle was the, the, the starting place. The cross was a stop. The white horse is the future. Have you surrendered everything to King Jesus? Are you following him this morning? Maybe this Christmas there's some introspection appropriate for you to ask yourself, man, how does my life reflect this crucial identity of Jesus, that he is king, that he is Lord? Does my life bear that out? Maybe there's some areas of your life that need to be brought and laid at the feet of King Jesus. Whether that be your marriage, your parenting, your career, your purity, your time, your money. Maybe those things need to be brought and surrendered to, to King Jesus this Christmas. Or perhaps you're here this morning saying, I, I don't know King Jesus. But maybe you recognize, man, I've, I've got a need for something that this world doesn't satisfy. Maybe that you would recognize this morning and admit this morning that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Because your sin has separated you from God. I'm here to tell you this morning that the message from God to you this Christmas is not, well, try harder, do better, be more godly. The message to you this morning is a message of surrender and faith and repentance. 
What does that mean? That means repenting from your sins. To repent is an old army word, meaning to do an about face. To turn away from our sin. To living for ourselves. To repent and, and then to the next word that we say is, is to believe, to trust. To trust fully in the death of Christ for you, that he died on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven. And that he rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. When we talk about trust, it's, it's not just an intellectual trust. There's a difference between me looking at that chair saying, yeah, I, that chair, chair can hold me up. There's a difference between that and me going and actually sitting down in the chair. It's when I sit down in the chair that true trust has been transferred to that chair. There's a difference between you intellectually saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. And you actually fully committing yourself to that in faith and repentance. Such that when you die, and death and taxes both batting a thousand these days, right? When you die and stand before the Lord and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? The only response that you have is to point to King Jesus and say, because of him and what he's done. If that's you this morning, you haven't made that decision, let me encourage you to do that this Christmas. That this baby, King Jesus, is the greatest gift that you could receive. Greater than anything in the, under the tree back at home. Repent and believe. Come to faith in Jesus this Christmas. For the rest of us, be reminded as you celebrate, as you drive home and you pass by the nativity scene, be reminded of who that baby is. It's not just another baby. It's the preeminent one. It's the one in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. It's King Jesus. And he's worthy of everything from us. Our whole lives, surrendered to him, centered on him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the message of salvation in him. We thank you for that good news. And God, we thank you for the, the clarity in your word of what it looks like to, to follow him. That we don't have to guess and say, well, I, I think this might be it, or I think I've done enough. That it's not about that. It's about surrendering in faith and repentance to you. To say, I'm, I'm done living who, for the life that I've been living and living for myself. And I want to turn and put my faith and trust in Jesus. That he is the one that died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead so that I can live with him forever. And I want to commit my life to following him for the rest of my life. Lord, for those in this room that have made that decision, God, we, we pray that this Christmas would be an encouraging time of, like the, the, the wise men, great joy. That we would rejoice exceedingly with great joy over what this baby means to us. And that because of that, that that would overwhelm us and cause us to think differently about everything else about our lives. That we would bring our lives like the wise men and lay them down at the feet of King Jesus to worship him forever and ever. Which we will do perfectly when you come back and call us home. Until that day, Lord, may we be found faithful to you. And thank you for King Jesus. Amen. Amen.